All right, everybody, welcome to a new episode on my channel, The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopez, and I'm joined today by Dr. Simon Dedeo. He is an assistant professor in social and decision sciences at Carnegie Mellon University and also external professor at the Santa Fe Institute. He also runs the Laboratory for Social Minds, where he and his team undertake empirical investigations and build mathematical theories of both historical and contemporary phenomena. So, Dr. Dedeo, thank you a lot for coming on the show. Absolutely. It's lovely to be here, Ricardo. Oh, it's my pleasure. Okay, so let me just ask you, because I, I, I guess it might be a bit weird for some people that you studied astrophysics and now basically you're applying uh, mathematical models that I guess are usually used in astrophysics to study human social behavior. So uh, how, how did that come about? Why, why did you decide after studying astrophysics to then apply some of its principles, I guess, to human behavior? It's the century of social sciences. I think uh, many physicists, when they started out uh, in, I mean, I was an undergraduate in the 1990s, uh, physics was an incredibly attractive field to be in. I think many of us over the years realized that it was probably better to be in that field 100 years earlier, right? That was the era when the the major revolutionary discoveries were made that was when we had general relativity for the first time quantum theory uh we were not in that era anymore uh in the late 1990s the best theoretical work that we had was at that time is string theory uh string theory already we realized i think was essentially a mathematical activity it was not an empirical one anymore and so a lot of us left the field. Um, you know, there's an enormous amount of exciting work that is still to be done in astrophysics and cosmology. I think that the number of people we need to do that is much smaller than the number of people that we graduated. So colleagues of mine who stayed in cosmology are having a blast, but there's so much exciting stuff that we saw we could do outside. So uh, friends of mine in physics went out and became, for example, neuroscientists. That's a common path. Uh, I was a little more unusual that I went from the physical sciences into the cognitive and the social sciences. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. So could you please tell us, um, I, I don't know if the right question to ask is why, but um, why, the, uh, why is, um, okay, let me reformulate perhaps. What are some of the physics principles or some of the mathematical models that, we, that you apply in physics that you can also apply to study human social behavior and historical and contemporary phenomena? This is a great question. So, uh, you know, the meat of it, right? Uh, what, what does a physical or a physics style perspective bring to the social sciences? Uh, Physicists are really good at what we call emergent phenomena. So we often think of physicists uh, studying you know, quarks or atoms, these very uh, tiny uh, constituents of matter. In fact, most physicists don't. Uh, astrophysicists don't study atoms. They don't study molecules even uh, very much. Uh, most of us study 
things like tables and chairs. Obviously, we, we study it at the more uh, uh, fine-grained level, at a more uh, sophisticated level. But if you think about it, there's no such thing as a chair at a fundamental level. There are only atoms and the void. And yet a chair has a physical being that's I'm sitting in one right now. So there's to some extent, even though the word chair is not in our fundamental theories of physics, it's certainly a thing. We sit on them. And the the turn that we were able to make in the social sciences was equivalent to the turn the physicists made in 1904, 1905, when Einstein wrote his stuff on the uh, photoelectric effect, which was we knew that culture was a thing. We knew society was a thing. I know that if I go out and I shoot somebody, I don't know who's going to arrest me, but probably somebody is. I know that the laws that we create, I know the societies we create have an enormous influence on the world. And they're like tables and chairs. We, for a long time, weren't able to study them at multiple levels. So we had sociologists who could look at the macro level. We had psychologists who could look at the micro level. What we have now is the ability to connect these two. And that's what the physicists do extraordinarily well. Uh, the, the great progress that we made in the 20th century was uh, in fundamentally, I think, in condensed matter physics. We think of particle physics as the elite, the high status field. But actually, the Higgs boson, probably the most exciting thing we've had in the last 30, 40 years, the Higgs boson is actually that's, uh, something that the condensed matter physicists discovered first. Not obviously that particle, but the theories behind it. So we're in this, we're in this era now where the kinds of tools we use to explain, for example, famously, uh, what happens when an ice cube melts, uh, what happens when steam condenses, what happens when something we call a spin glass forms, amorphous materials form. Those techniques have turned out to be extraordinarily powerful. They've been powerful in the neurosciences. We've understood there are deep analogies between how the brain stores information and how a physical substance preserves its initial conditions. And the thing that we can do now in the data science era is apply those same techniques to the relationship between the individual and the group. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you refer to the fact that you're sort of studying emergent phenomena. So uh, they are emergent in what sense? That the rules that apply at the micro level are the same that apply at the level of societies, for example? So interestingly, the answer to that is is, is no. And uh, the, the exciting thing about emergent phenomena is that you begin with one set of laws at the individual level. And when these laws percolate up, when individuals, in the case of society, when individuals interact, the laws you get at this higher level, the laws that you might say describe social behavior, uh, those laws are very different. So you put one thing in at the bottom and out the other side comes something very different. Another way to say that is that you have a psychology. You, you, we understand reasonably well, for example, how emotions relate to each other. We understand the ways in which rationality and irrationality coexist in a human and in an individual. Uh, there are analogous phenomena at the social level, but the laws are very different. And that's, I think, part of the game for us is to say, how do you get from a psychology to a society? Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, what, what, are, what are the similarities between 
what you apply in physics and what you apply when you're studying human societies? Is it that, for example, you use the same kinds of mathematical models, you collect a huge amount of raw data, for example, in terms of human interactions, and then you compute it all, you, you get a mathematical representation of it, and uh, to obtain that mathematical representation, you're utilizing the same mathematical modeling, or, or, or how, how does it go exactly? Yeah, no. So, I mean, I'm 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 smiling because this is, of course, all the fun in this in this game. And for me, and this is a, a lot of the way my lab works, is we often begin at the social level. We, we we begin at the aggregate, and we then try to work downwards. And so we're often in a position where we see phenomena that we can describe without direct reference to any particular individual. We'll look, for example, at the flow of information through a system. We'll look at the way in which a society will maintain a particular pattern of behavior and then shift either gradually or suddenly into a new pattern. So we often begin with a mathematical or at least a quantitative empirical account of what happens at this high level. And then the real question is, can we explain that by reference to the individual? Can we, can we understand what happens here talking solely in terms of what happens down here? And so, of course, an a, a, a human thinks and processes information, but so does a society. And can we explain that one by reference to that one? Mm -hmm. Yes, I understand. So, uh, and when you're doing your work, do you also take into account, for example, some of the recent discoveries that have been done in psychology and particularly in social psychology about, for example, the biases and heuristics that people have when dealing with social information? Absolutely. I think this is one of the, uh, I think, one of the cutting edge uh, parts for our work. So. Um, you spoke about mathematical models. Uh, one of the ways that we've approached a uh, account of this map between individuals and the group, right, how we come together to make things, one of the ways that we've approximated or, or, uh, or described that in the past is by reference to models of optimal cognition. So we talk, for example, as if the human brain is almost an artificial machine that's processing information in an ideal way. It's throwing nothing out, it's making maximal use. This is sometimes called the Bayesian perspective. The Bayesian perspective has gotten us a long way, but what we've learned from social psychology, certainly from behavioral economics, and this is something that my colleagues here at Carnegie Mellon were at the forefront of, leaders of this, of this program. What we've learned from them is that we don't do that. We are not optimal processors of information. And there's a lot of reasons why, of course. Uh, one is, is that we often have to make decisions quickly. Another is, is that we have limited powers of introspection. And uh, I'll give you an example of this. This is one that I think is, is particularly important now as, as we try to build better societies. Uh, we had this uh, scandal, I would say. It's a scandal that happened in Wikipedia. So Wikipedia for me is an amazing system because it's essentially an anarchy that has produced something that no top-down organization has ever been able to produce. They, within five years, crushed a 300-year-old, uh, maybe even 500-year-old project of building a universal encyclopedia, and they did it 
essentially in five or ten years. It's an amazing achievement. So we've, we've studied that system in a lot of different ways, how people have created the laws that, that go along with it. Uh, this system had a scandal, and the scandal was that one of the recent winners of the Nobel Prize um, did not have an entry. She was, she was not included in Wikipedia uh, on the day that she won the Nobel Prize. And Wikipedia's coverage is imperfect, of course, and so one thing you can say is that, well, you know, accidents happen. So I drilled down into this. I asked, okay, so how did it actually come about that somebody who was clearly incredibly qualified uh, end up being uh, excluded from the system. Now, another way to say it is many colleagues of mine who are far more junior, who are not about to win the Nobel Prize, have Wikipedia entries, some, some uh, uh, faculty, early career faculty. So, so what happened? So we can dig into this and we can actually watch the progress of the article that never was. We actually, twice, somebody wrote an article about this woman and attempted to put it into the encyclopedia. In both cases, it was rejected. It was deleted. In one case, it was rejected. And the other case, it was actually simply deleted by the administrators. And the way in which that happened is, I think, a wonderful example of the ways in which a social behavior is only weakly linked to an individual behavior. My sense of this, and I think this would take more academic work, is that as this article progressed through the bureaucracy, and Wikipedia had to create a bureaucracy to manage this, this absolutely enormous system, it's essentially a city of 50,000 people, Wikipedia had to create a bureaucracy. At every point in that system, there was a chance for the article to survive and a chance for the article to die. If at any point in time, there was a small bias against including women in the encyclopedia. Let's say a one or two percent preference for deleting a woman's article versus a man's article. If at any point, because there were so many moments at which that test could happen, if you roll the dice a thousand times, it's going to come up with a result that happens one in a thousand times. And so at the end of this process, what you have, and I think the absence of an article for this woman is, a, is an example of this, at the end of this process is you have a very severe bias against women at the social level, even though every individual actor, as best as they can tell, are behaving in a way that they consider to be equitable. So the man involved, for example, in deleting that article uh, was very upset because, of course, the newspapers focused on him and said, look, you're biased against this woman because you deleted her article. And he comes back and he says, look, I'm not. I have introspected. I've looked into my soul and I don't see this bias. I look at my own behavior. I go back in time. I don't see it. Even if that bias to that man is imperceptible, at the social level, it has these incredibly strong consequences. And so that's, I think, a wonderful case where even a weak bias, something that none of the individuals can see in themselves, even a weak bias acts to exclude or, or, or to create a society, I think, in which we think that something is wrong. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's very interesting. And uh, because you referred to Wikipedia, in fact, I had a question about that, but now you already answered it, so no, no problem. But uh, and now I want to ask you, since Wikipedia supplanted other projects, other encyclopedic projects, let's say, would you say that 
uh, what you get in many of these social analyses is that when we have a huge number of people working together to, toward the goal, even if many of them many times make mistakes, the, the end product is better than, uh, let's say, a few number of individuals, even if they are highly intelligent, working together or even a single individual? I think this is the key question for the, the coming years. So much of our technological society at this point is built by these kinds of decentralized communities. So I have an Apple Mac here. Apple makes a huge amount of money. The core of that system was built by an open community. It was, it was built by people in many different corporations, essentially working for free uh, to, 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 build that, to, to build that underlying code. Uh, this is a, it's a remarkable phenomenon. It's, it's a, uh, it's, you know, major points, I'd say, for our species, like, well done, right? That somehow we're able to leverage individual talent working freely to produce something of immense social value. So this is exciting. It's one of the things we work on. We don't understand it. And I think the stories that we tend to tell about a system like Wikipedia, a system like Linux, the stories we tell are wrong, by and large. The things that we intuitively think ought to be the case turn out not to be. So a wonderful example is indeed the open source community. Uh, many of the critical bits of software that are, enable our conversation, for example, right now, many of the critical bits of that software are indeed written by these open communities. But when you look at the people who contribute to them, in fact, it's incredibly concentrated. So uh, this came to the fore recently, uh, OpenSSL. So this is the um, uh, interface and the protocol that enable us to uh, communicate securely across uh, a insecure line. So the little, uh, little lock icon, right, in your browser, the HTTPS. Um, that, uh, that chunk of code was, uh, is written, obviously, by a decentralized group. But essentially, at the core of it is one or two people that are writing an enormous amount of it. There is a great inequality, in other words, in who is contributing to these systems. You have a large halo of people, and then you have this centralized core. It's a form of inequality. It's not, a, uh, it's not necessarily a bad form of inequality. It's very different from income inequality. But one of the things we've learned is that in these systems, people take on roles. They get absorbed to different rates. And we see the formation of Again, the word hierarchy is wrong because that, that, that makes it sound like somebody has enforced that. Uh, you know, hierarchy meaning the rule of priests. Uh, but these things emerge. So in fact, even when we try to create societies without societies, without laws, without patterns, without structures, they always come back. Uh, an example that I think is, is relevant is uh, Stack Exchange. So Stack Exchange is, uh, I mean, if you have a problem with a piece of code you're trying to write and you Google, you're probably going to find the answer on Stack Exchange. It's, I would say, uh, a system that is as successful, if not more successful, than Wikipedia. Uh, it's what enables my students to solve their Python problems. Uh, Stack Exchange is not just computers now. It's mathematics. It's physics. It's linguistics. It's gone well beyond its origins in the kind of physical sciences, computer sciences, nerd culture.
Stack Exchange is a decentralized community, but the people who began it, the people who are maintaining those servers, also spent a great deal of time thinking about the kind of society they wanted to create. They didn't just turn on a server, send an email to the world, and sit back and watch it. They thought carefully about the kinds of incentives people would have in order to contribute. They thought carefully about how that filtering would occur. They thought carefully about the onboarding, how to bring in new people, how to uh, enable them to join the community, how to leverage the, the dedication of, of incredibly sophisticated users without enabling them to take over that system ideologically or, or intellectually. So at the end of this, I think it's not just that you build a baseball stadium and the team shows up. It's true that that team is a very different kind of team from the ones that we've assembled in the past, but we've not left politics behind. We need uh, political theory still to understand these systems. And actually, one of the major questions we have is, what kind of theories do we need to understand how those systems self-regulate? Mm -hmm. Correct. Okay. Uh, and would you say, because you referred just now to the fact that uh, collectives of people usually organize into hierarchies, so would you say that perhaps that happens because uh, since we innately have these, again, biases and heuristics to process social information that are the result of evolutionary processes, that uh, when that happens, when we deal with other people in a collective, um, over time uh, there are these sort of self-organizing systems that develop. Through, just through the exchange of information between, let's say, computational minds operating under the same algorithms? I think there's a lot of drivers, and you, you bring up the heuristics and biases uh, example. I, I think certainly that's, that's in play. So we know that when people go online to organize, they send a lot of signals. They, they display signals of expertise, for example. Uh, we know, and this is work done uh, by some colleagues of mine here at Carnegie Mellon, we know, for example, that uh, somebody with a female username, with a username that uh, suggests that the person behind the screen is a woman, we know that uh, those people receive uh, fewer, for example, likes, fewer levels of kudos for the same content. And in fact, there's been now uh, interventional experiments that have shown this. So the identical content submitted by somebody who uh, appears to be female is treated differently. So that kind of bias is there certainly in our systems and it's something that could lead to some of the separation that we see. There are other things that happen. I, I think it's not entirely clear that hierarchy or at least inequality in an online system is bad. Uh, inequality can, for example, represent differing levels of commitment. We saw this in Wikipedia where the, the users who were the most active in editing that system were not necessarily those defining the content, but actually simply cleaning it up. So somebody would come in, they would dump a bunch of really useful information into the system, and then there was this kind of kind of priest class, but the priest class was, was actually doing a lot of what you might even think of as janitorial work. So the hierarchies that we see online are, are different from the ones that we see uh, in the real world. The, and this is maybe a, a wonderful thing we get from physics, um, 
one of the one of the best generators of hierarchy, one of the best generators of long tail phenomena, where many many people do a little and some people do a lot. Many many people have uh, little power. Some people have a lot. Sometimes called the Pareto principle, the eighty twenty rule. Uh, the simplest way to generate that is uh, through a log normal distribution. Log normal distribution is like a Gaussian, but it's Gaussian with uh, in, in logarithmic space. All this means is that if people receive random multiplicative gains, so that might be, for example, somebody with a pot of money, and every year they get a different rate of return. Sometimes they get 10%, sometimes 5 sometimes negative 5 uh, Under those processes, you're always going to have extreme winners. So whenever somebody's power is uh, grows not linearly, meaning I have power x and I get plus 1, Whenever that power grows multiplicatively, so I have power x and now I have power uh, x plus 10% of x, you're always going to get that extreme power distribution. And when you get multiplicative returns, you get them usually when there are feedback effects. Power generates power. Uh, excitement generates excitement. Dedication generates dedication. In each of those cases, for better or for worse, you're going to end up with this long tail. You're going to end up with a few people that are doing the majority of stuff. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's not so good. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Okay, so earlier you referred to the fact that in your studies you usually start with the collective and then try to level it down to the level of the individual. So would you say that perhaps what you're trying to do, at least in a way, is also to get at uh, how uh, the algorithms that we have in our mind operate mathematically, that is to have a mathematical representation of how uh, information is processed by our brains. Yes, I think this is, I mean, this is the challenge for us. Um, this is something that cognitive scientists have done for, for many decades, really. You might even say many centuries, right? It goes back to Spinoza and his uh, mathematical account, geometric account of, of thought. You might say Thomas Hobbes was somebody who also thought about this. Hobbes begins his political theory, his account of society, with a psychological account, with an account of how the individual thinks. Uh, this is something that's been sitting there uh, for many, many years. Uh, in the 20th century, with the origin of sociology, we split these to a certain extent. We had uh, a psychologist like William James, and we had a sociologist like Emil Durkheim, and uh, these two paths forked. Today, they're coming back, and this is, I think, the, the, an exciting point for us, where indeed we can try to construct mathematical models of the individual's thought processes. A lot of us get inspiration, obviously we have it, I, we brought this up, this, uh, these optimal models, so a Bayesian model of cognition where people are making maximal uh, use of what's coming in. Uh, we also have this input from behavioral economics where we try to build mathematical models of why people actually screw it up, why they behave in ways that, from a naive point of view, look uh, irrational. Now, two things. One is that oftentimes what seems to be irrational is actually, in fact, on reflection, very rational. Uh, I disagree with some of my colleagues when they say that behavioral economics reveals human irrationality. 
I think actually what it does is it reveals that we have a very limited conception of rational behavior. Put that aside for a second. Uh, the, the third influence uh, on, on top of those first two comes from the machine learning and artificial intelligence revolution. What we've been able to do, and this really began not even 10 years ago, is build machines that are able to produce human-like behavior in a way that we haven't seen before. Uh, the 1980s, the 1990s were the era of what they called good old-fashioned AI, go find. Good old-fashioned AI, you might say, was a kind of Spinozan story about how people think. It said, oh, you know, Simon's got some concepts, he's got some ideas, uh, he's, you know, these little objects are going to relate to each other in different ways. Uh, there may be a language of thought, there may be some kind of internal syntax that, that we're doing. We may have a very simple computational process going on there, and computational uh, in the sense of, it's like a bit of computer code. So that was the 80s and the 90s. It was like, look, what's the, what's the source code of the human brain? This, this never worked. Uh, we learned a huge amount. We didn't learn very much about cognition, I would say. We, we gained a great deal of beautiful mathematical insights, but uh, we didn't actually, I would say, learn how people think. And what happened in the last 10 years was that the computer scientists, I would say, made a huge advance on us. They realized that the way to produce human-like behavior, or at least decision-making behavior that we had previously only ever seen in humans, was to not try to write down the source code, but to find that source code dynamically. So this is deep learning. Uh, in deep learning, you have a network, so it doesn't even matter what it is. There's some metaphor to neurons, the metaphor's not true, don't worry about it. Uh, you can think of that network as representing an enormous space of possible programs. And the whole magic of deep learning, and this is, you know, you do a PhD in deep learning, this is, this is your job, right, is to get that network to find the right program. Now, when it does find that program, it's essentially unreadable by a human. There's uh, inputs come in one side, behaviors come out the other side. What happens in the middle is completely mysterious to us. We have no idea exactly what kind of reasoning process takes us from here all the way out to here. This is a challenge for many reasons. It's a problem for uh, non-scientific reasons, for policymaking, for example, when we use these machines to tell us what we should do legally or politically. Um, but for us as cognitive social scientists, uh, it's a huge opportunity. Because if we can take those chunks of code, essentially, those, those little chunks of deep learning, and somehow reverse engineer them, we may be able to learn something about cognition that the philosophers that kicked off our field would never have imagined. So that's, I think, for us, the, this third path is probably the, uh, the most exciting one for those of us outside of, let's say, the behavioral economics field. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay, so you also study historical social phenomena. I would like to ask you what sorts of, what kinds of sources do you use to obtain data to then uh, mathematically model historical social phenomena? Uh, we, we get it wherever we can. Uh, it's, uh, you know, people say, well, why, why do you work on history? Uh, because that's where the action is. Uh, 
you know, you can put somebody in a lab and get their responses. You can watch somebody on Wikipedia and get their responses. But if you want to see people making decisions that matter uh, for their very lives, usually you have to go to the historical record. Uh, you know, it's one thing to get in a fight on Wikipedia. It's another thing to start the French Revolution. So we go back there because we see people doing the things that matter most. If you want to understand why people have a revolution in 2018, the best place to look is, let's say, 1789. Where do we get that data? Um, the fun thing is, is of course, uh, a lot of national governments today, as often as a point of national pride, are digitizing some of these old archives. So uh, the British are leaders on this. British great, rec great record keepers, right? You know, Napoleon said they were a nation of shopkeepers. I would say they're, they're a nation of, of writers down. Uh, so our early work actually was, was driven by the availability of criminal court data. So the British had kept incredibly good records of what happened in their central court system, uh, going from the 1600s all the way up to 1913 is where our data cut off. And we got that simply, it was a national project by the British government. It was funded by the National Lottery over there. It was, I don't know the full extent, but I would say on the order of 10 million pounds. It's a very difficult thing to do to take, you know, rotting pieces of paper and turn them into digital archives. But we didn't have to do that. We, that happened because the, uh, the British people decided they wanted that. Uh, same thing with the French Revolution data. Um, so this was our first project was on the Old Bailey that came out in 2014. That was our the thing that kicked off our laboratory. Really, uh, the French Revolution data was the same way. That was a project of the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, and Stanford uh, helped, I would say. Uh, but again, this was something. It's a project that's too large for a group of seven people like we have here. That's something that a nation wants to do. Uh, we're excited. The Koreans, uh, South Korean government has digitized uh, a uh, what's called the Annals of the Joseon Dynasty. That's, in fact, the longest timescale record I've ever seen. That goes back to the 1300s. It runs all the way until the 20th century. Uh, the Indian government is digitizing the records of some of its major figures. Gandhi is an obvious example. So the, the Gandhi letters are now coming out. The Russians uh, have, in fact, the Russians, uh, this is a wonderful story. Uh, we have the records from Tolstoy. We have a digitized collection of all of his diaries and all of his letters. In that case, it wasn't so much the Russian government. I won't talk about the Russian government right now. It wasn't so much the government, but it's actually a distributed network of people within Russia dedicated to transcribing that data. So they typed it in. Uh, it was a distributed, almost Wikipedia-like phenomenon. That's a beautiful example there of uh, a nation recovering some of its own cultural heritage, even in the absence, I would say, of significant government support. So we love history because that's where, that's where things happen. Um, but the people whose history it is love it just as much. And it's often due to the enthusiasm of those nations that we have those records to study. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what would you say is perhaps or, or are the differences between your approach to studying human social behavior and social phenomena and what people do in areas like game theory, for example? <laughs> ah, game theory. Um, game theory is an interesting subject. Um, you know, this was a field that was essentially invented in the 1940s. It comes out of a 
uh, of a national, in this case the United States, uh, a national desire for technocratic control. So game theory was going to say, look, uh, we will, A, tell you what people are going to do from a very simple mathematical model, and B, we're going to tell you how to set up an incentive structure if you want them to do something else. It was a very, it was a theory that was very amenable to a top-down control of society that at that point in time, the American government was very interested in. Uh, in part, why were they interested in it? Because we had just fought an entire world war. Uh, we had been successful in it. The Allies had been successful in that war. And uh, it was an amazing success of essentially top-down organization. Eisenhower was in control of that system and it bubbled down. So that was the world that game theory was created in. That world no longer exists, if it ever existed. Uh, you know, why did people fight in World War II? I don't think there's a game theory explanation. Uh, we know, for example, and this is maybe a, a, a story of, of, of uh, purely historical interest, but um, when the Marines are landing uh, on D-Day, or sorry, in Iwo Jima, so they're coming off of one of these troop transports, the first guys who got to that beach, the, the mortality rate was in the tens of percent. So the question is, is why would you ever get off that boat? Uh, the answer, as far as we can tell, was a psychological one. It was a cultural one. And the reason people got off that boat was nothing to do with any kind of incentive structure that a game theorist could understand. It was because the men on that boat didn't want to let each other down. They had commitments that were well beyond anything that we could describe game theoretically. So what's the relationship we have to game theory? Certainly to the old, um, you know, Morgenstein, von Neumann game theory, uh, we've essentially walked away from it. There's some work that I've seen, I mentioned this uh, stack exchange work done by my colleagues at CMU. Uh, in that case, they have a game theoretic model, I think that actually works very well, but some of the inputs to that are extremely cultural. So they have a game theoretic model of why people would discriminate in different ways against women online, but the inputs to that model have a cultural flair to them. So that's probably, I think, where the future of game theory lies. It's uh, as a, uh, accompaniment to this richer cultural data that's coming in. You ask what we do, um, we kicked this off, we kicked off a lot of this work, we were a very small group, we had very limited funding, but we were also at a very uh, supportive environment. This was at the Santa Fe Institute where this began. So when you're a small group of people and you're up against, let's say, uh, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, Oxford, and Cambridge, when you're up against these very elite institutions with a lot of prestige, uh, how, do you, how do you build something real? And the answer is, and this is always the rule in guerrilla warfare, uh, you do the hardest thing, right? Uh, we took on problems that I would say, they were problems that no one thought we could solve. And in fact, when I was early in my career working on the analysis of the historical data in the Old Bailey, uh, I was told by many, many, many senior faculty who visited the Institute that I would never get a job. And uh, my sense was this is the only way that uh, we're going to survive as a lab, as if we take on these extraordinarily hard problems. Uh, the problems we took on are now problems that many people take on. They, the problems we took on were, for example, an analysis of text, not just an analysis of action, not you know how many clicks does somebody do, not uh, what was the income level, not what was the death rate. We took on the, the challenge of analyzing what people said, what people wrote. 
And when people speak and when they write, they don't write according to script. There's not a simple way to, as the sociologists say, operationalize speech. You and I, we could study your 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 uh, your video interviews, for example. Uh, we could just list all the people and the institutions they came from, and that would be one way to study you. Uh, a much deeper way to study you would be to work with the transcripts that come out the other side. So that was the problem we took on. That's not a game theory problem. That's a problem that is uh, requires us to model cognition. It requires us to develop new tools. It requires us to apply some of the old tools, such as information theory, to unexpected ends. I think that's where we part ways. As I say, I think there is a great role for a new version of game theory. Uh, there's a wonderful book uh, by Herb Gintist and Sam Bowles called A Cooperative Species. Uh, this is, to me, the, the future of game theory. Uh, that's not our space. Our space is still today a space that's populated by uh, people who want to go to the hardest possible ground. Mm -hmm. Okay, very well. Okay, so in your work, you also study cultural evolution. Would you say that perhaps uh, what you do mathematically could be integrated with the work done by some anthropologists that work specifically also in cultural evolution, like, for example, as I've already had on the show, Doctor, the work coming from Dr. Robert Boyd? <laughs> uh, uh, Rob's amazing. So Rob is, uh, he was a huge inspiration to, uh, to us at the Institute. So he was, I think he was external faculty or I don't know, we somehow tricked him into coming. Uh, the Institute, actually the Santa Fe Institute, um, just because we happen to be in the American Southwest in New Mexico, uh, in New Mexico are some of the uh, most fertile places to study cultural evolution. Uh, simply because we have a lot of uh, archaeological sites here. The sites are preserved much better than they are in other places of the United States, at least, because it's so dry. And we also have uh, very rich um, uh, contemporary cultures that have, uh, you know, uh, have not entirely merged into what you might uh, consider to be uh, the, the kind of homogenization of, of contemporary culture. So we have not just uh, archaeologists, but also anthropologists. And the thing you'll say, I mean, uh, you know, those groups, uh, someone like Rob Boyd, these guys don't take on easy problems. Uh, we had a great sympathy because they weren't simply uh, repeating uh, some of the analogies that I think are, are particularly attractive and particularly useless. Um, so to give you an example, and this is something that your listeners might be familiar with, um, uh, Richard Dawkins many years ago in a book called The Extended Phenotype uh, coined the word meme. Uh, a meme was supposedly like a gene. It was a unit of culture replication. This was what was going to give us the analogy between biological evolution and cultural evolution. Um, the meme is a, a point now in popular culture. Everyone knows it. The meme has been, I think, uh, one of the least useful ideas for those who actually work in the study of evolving human cultures. There is no such thing as a meme. It's a great idea. It would be nice if it did exist. It just doesn't exist. There is no independent object that you can track through time in the way you can track, let's say, a particular genetic mutation. There is no analogy. Uh, the human brain is the conduit for culture. 
uh, the sexual, uh, the, the gamete, the, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the cells of the sexual reproductive system are the path for biological evolution. The brain is not an ovum. The brain is not a sperm. Uh, the, the gamete is a tiny, hyper-compressed package that squeezes an enormous amount of information through a tiny, tiny spigot. Uh, the human brain is richer than its own environment. So I think the, the, uh, for me, one of the starting points for cultural evolution was uh, to look towards people who understood that culture was not just a collection of, let's say, 10 different ideas that can flip on and off that every behavior, every practice was embedded in a network of other practices. So that was for me, when I encountered the kind of work that comes out of, let's say, well, Rob's work, uh, Gordon Richardson, Not By Genes Alone, uh, that kind of work was, to me, it was completely refreshing. The mistake I saw a lot of my colleagues in the physical sciences make was in not talking to, to people who had actually been out in the field and looked at how the, the real world worked uh, looked not just at American culture, European cultures, but also at some of the hunter-gatherer cultures and uh, pastoralist cultures. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's go all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, because I want to ask you, you referred to, at a certain point, uh, to emergentism and emergentist processes, but what do you understand by emergentism? Th that is, uh, are there commonalities that we find from the lower levels uh, up to the upper levels? That is, for example, the levels of uh, particles uh, to the level up to the levels of societies, or is it the case that you understand emergentism as as the whole being more than the sum of the parts and if and if you understand it by this then what is the, what are the spooky stuff going around there that, that for the whole to be more than the sum of the parts uh i mean the uh the the philosophical status of emergent phenomena is uh, is a fascinating one. I think if uh, if there's a PhD in philosophy in your in your audience, I would say this is a this is a fantastic problem. But there is something spooky. Uh, there is something spooky about the fact that I can go out into the world and I can encounter ideas that nobody actually believes in. Uh, I, one of the things I tell my students uh, when I teach, I say, is there anything you believe that you would hesitate to tell your friends? And it doesn't matter how left-wing or how right-wing my students are. Every time I ask this question, you get this kind of guilty look. Uh, we have ideas that flow through our world that uh, are disconnected from any particular mind. That's weird. That's spooky. It's a book that nobody wrote. We can't say, oh, you know, it was, I don't know, Jefferson wrote it. It's Jefferson's fault. Americans are particularly, I think, uh, uh, vulnerable to missing this because, you know, there were 50 people who wrote the Constitution um, and we're like, okay, well, who wrote that one, right? That's, we often think that, but these ideas have detached. The French understood this much better. Um, I was proud to say we are, I think, the first people to cite Michel Foucault in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. I think Foucault got a lot of this right. So there is something profoundly spooky 
about the existence of laws of social behavior that are not simply uh, directly analogous to laws of human thought. Uh, now, we're used to that in the physical sciences as well. I think we've become increasingly comfortable with it. I would say the Santa Fe Institute was the, uh, the place that drove this and pushed this into the scientific consciousness for the better. Uh, there's a wonderful article since you say, uh, since you say, you know, more is, is you know, what happens when you have more. Um, so it's a wonderful article that, that I think physicists would do well to read. Many of us have, uh, called more is different. This article, uh, is for the physicist, your gateway drug into, uh, the kinds of phenomena that you need to understand if you're going to be a social scientist. Uh, more is different was really an analogy to, uh, was, it was an account of how we see this spooky emergentism in physical systems where, look, it's, it's not, uh, how do I put it? Uh, it's easy to dismiss someone like Foucault as just a mystic or somebody anti-scientific, but when you see the same patterns of, of emergent phenomena in some of the most rigorous chunks of physics we know, it's, it's much harder to dismiss them. Uh, most recently, I think, the physicists have actually um, have, have discovered the power of this uh, in an unexpected place, uh, which is in quantum theory itself. And so uh, one of the deep questions is, we know the equations of the universe are governed by something we call the Schrodinger equation. Uh, the objects of the Schrodinger equation are so bizarre and so impossible to imagine that we now have this problem of where, you know, where does this come from? There's no, there's no mathematical structure in our fundamental physical theories that looks like anything we encounter in our day-to-day -day lives. There's not even a notion, for example, of probability at that level. So the physicists actually have the hardest problem of all. They have to describe not the relationship between the individual brain and the social world. They have to uh, understand the relationship between the fundamental laws of physics and the world. The, the best account they have actually is the many worlds account. And uh, the, I think for me, the key philosopher in this is a man called David Wallace. Uh, David Wallace has, I think, written down what many people have, have worked to, to produce, a theory that many people have worked to produce, which is to say that the very world itself is an emergent phenomenon. That the, the way in which you explain the classical world uh, from the quantum equations that govern it is that, in fact, everything we see is just a rough story that comes out of a fundamental equation that looks nothing like the fundamental equations higher up. Newton's laws, uh, some of the most rigorous and non-spooky stuff that we can imagine, uh, are, in fact, I would say, uh, just as spooky as the psychological laws and the social laws that, that my lab now studies. Mm -hmm. Okay, but could it be the case that perhaps the issue here with emergentism and, on the other hand, reductionism is just that, uh, particularly at the social level, 
the workings of social systems are so hugely complex that it is simply a matter of us not having a sufficient cognitive power to even process all the information that goes around there. And perhaps if we could do that, then we could turn back to reductionism and try to reduce it all to perhaps laws of physics. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you wish to take the mystery out of the world. Um, so, I mean, you know, this is, this is uh, obviously, this is a philosophical position uh, that the physicists began, I would say. Uh, Laplace's demon, right? If I know the fundamental laws and I have perfect knowledge of the underlying conditions, then I don't need anything else. I, I got everything I need. Uh, I mean, look, in one sense, yes, right? I don't believe that there's a ghost that shows up somewhere in between the fundamental laws and these laws up here. There isn't. And of course, much of the success of condensed matter physics is showing exactly why there's no ghost in the machine, that you can get the phase transition at a macro level from a set of physical laws that are, have no notion of that at the, at the fundamental level. So in one sense, yes, you can be a reductionist. Uh, there's a book uh, by some colleagues, uh, uh, James Ladyman is, is the name I remember off the top of my head, but it's a joint work called Everything Must Go. So not everything must go, but everything. Uh, and they take this reductionist position. They say, look, the only objects that philosophers should allow in their metaphysics are the most basic units that uh, fundamental physics tells us exist. It's a the most hardcore scientific position you can imagine. Any other object that you put in there has must have some reduced second-class status. I don't buy this, and I don't buy this for, I would say, let's give three reasons. The first is that um, a social scientist, a psychologist, we are called on by society, and we're, our students join our, our groups, because we want to describe not the motions of fundamental particles, but because we want to describe or understand emotions. We want to understand revolutions. Yeah, you can cash out the French Revolution in terms of, you know, a whatever it would be, a, you know, 10 to the 30 number of particles, uh, you know, floating through Paris. Uh, but you know, one answer is, is why. It's of no use to us. Revolutions are cognitively salient things, and we want to know how they work. The second thing is that um, it's not just that it's useful to talk about these emergent phenomena and to give them independent status, but the people in those societies themselves do. So it's not simply that it's useful to describe you as a human being uh, and not just a collection of, of, of particles in, in Portugal. Uh, it's, it's also the fact that I'm a human being and we're in a social interaction now and I represent you as, as a man in Portugal. That's actually, if you want to describe my behavior, you have to take those objects seriously just because I, as a part of the system, take them seriously. So I think that's the second reason. It's not just that it's useful, but that it's necessary. That object plays a causal role. Uh, the third thing is, uh, and this is where I, I depart from, uh, from this hyper-reductionism, is that, you know, isn't it weird that these objects show up? It's a little strange. Uh, it's a little strange that many different cultures, for example, settle on some of the same objects in their talk. Uh, 
one of the reasons, for example, look, all physicists are Platonists, basically. Uh, never trust a physicist who isn't. Most mathematicians actually aren't Platonists. They're a different breed. It's hard to understand them. But any physicist is a Platonist. I'm a Platonist. And one of the reasons I'm a Platonist is that, you know what, prime numbers, um, basically every culture that we know of that exists today independently discovered prime numbers. I would say that makes prime numbers a thing. It's not a cultural practice. Uh, the Chinese knew what prime numbers were before the Europeans ever had contact with them and vice versa. Uh, it wasn't like Marco Polo showed up and brought the, you know, brought the Europeans. The number seven is a little strange compared to the number, I don't know, 35. Um, so, you know, those things exist, and uh, at least I'm willing to claim they do. But so do a lot of these other emergent objects. Uh, we know different cultures, they may differ on some of the emotions, but we know that cultures, for example, tend to agree on the existence of something we call sadness. Uh, they tend to agree on something we call regret. Uh, guilt is a separate one. Guilt may have emerged in cultures a little bit later, and so some cultures may or may not have it. But these objects, these emergent objects, appear in so many different places that it's hard to call them objects of convention. They seem to show up in ways that suggests that it's not just a useful thing that, you know, a bunch of people in one place have decided to make a thing. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Okay, but anyway, you don't have to worry about the fact that uh, I am a reductionist because I'm not a reductionist. <laughs> I, I well, was it's fine, it's fine. But if you have any reductionists, you know, if you have any collections of particles out there who, who we claim to be reductionist, um, I think that's, I, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a position that gives one simultaneously a sense of power and impotence. If you're a reductionist, you think you're around the world and you just can't. Uh, and I think those of us who, who adapt a more emergent disposition on things uh, realize both that we don't control the world, that there are phenomena beyond our control, but at the same time, they may in some cases be things that we can get a grasp on. We're not victims of the emergent phenomena we see around us. We, uh, they play a causal role in our lives, but we as individuals play a causal role in their lives as well. Uh, okay, so Dr. Dadeo, just before we go, would you like perhaps to tell people what are some of the best online resources for them to get in touch with your work? And also perhaps tell us a little bit about the work you've been doing also with your students at the Laboratory for Social Minds at Carnegie Mellon. Absolutely, yeah. So um, all the work we do is linked from our website at the Santa Fe Institute. Uh, we have some online courses that we sometimes run um, through the Complexity Explorer. And we're really interested in taking on uh, early career researchers, particularly people who are out of their bachelor's or master's degrees but um, aren't yet signed up for a PhD program. So a lot of the research we do comes from people at that career stage. Mm -hmm. Okay, very well. Uh, okay, and, and about the, the online resources, the best places for people to follow your work, perhaps apart from the lab? Uh, absolutely. So uh, one of the big things that we've done is record a series of video lectures with the Santa Fe Institute on renormalization. Uh, that's renorm.complexityexplorer.org. And we're doing some new uh, online work uh, later in the year on 
Culture Analytics, and one of my favorite things, which is Quebec Library Divergence. So check into the lab website, and we link all of that from there, or you can go straight to the Complexity Explorer website. Okay, great. So I will be leaving all of all of the links in the description box for all of the things that you just said. And again, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It was a real pleasure of mine. And perhaps in the future, we could have another conversation. I don't know. Um, it's been thrilling here as well. So thank you very much for doing this, Ricardo. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for watching this video until the end. I would also like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and see if you can make a pledge there. I would really be thankful for that. And finally, I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons Karen Litzke, Anne Blanche, Per Helga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantal Gelinas and Jim Frank. Thank you a lot for all.